Like I said, I'm going to be touching on some dark places, not in great detail, but however dark the tunnel may seem, we'll end up in the light. Um, I hope to end up with plenty of time for questions uh, and responses at the end. Uh, and of course, you're welcome to contact me later for any further discussion uh, because there's, I mean, this is going to be moving pretty fast, kind of a once over. Uh, and there's one of the fascinating things about any discussion of the undead is that there are so many directions you can take symbolism and parallels and that sort of thing. Um, there are a few basic principles I want to lay out before I get into the, let's call it the meat of the presentation. And no, the puns won't be endless. Uh, these principles frame much of the way I look at the world in general, especially questions about good and evil and cosmic issues like that. These aren't original. Uh, I picked them up from various places over the years. Uh, anyone trained in philosophy can probably name explicit, you know, sources and origins and schools of thought and et cetera, et cetera. But at the moment, I just want to sort of show you where I'm coming from. I don't want to parse out or strictly define anything here. Uh, perhaps the most basic idea is that evil has no substance of its own. Evil is only and always a corruption of something good. God originally created the world so that everything in it was good and nothing was created evil. Of course, we live in a fallen world. The fall is described in Genesis affected everything in ways we usually don't even realize. Though everything was created good, everything is also tainted by the fall to some extent. Even the desire to return to the good can and has been twisted. Restoration or redemption is possible but difficult. And uh, if you are familiar with the icon of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, it shows people climbing this ladder and falling off all along, so it's easy to fall off at any time. It's easy to go astray. We're all human. We're all made to a similar blueprint, uh, as it were. What this suggests to me is that where we find attitudes, taboos, celebrations, and, and cultural responses that resonate across cultural boundaries and across generations, that points towards something that is inherent in our makeup. Um, where those commonalities specifically revolve around taboos or fascination with evil, for example, vampires, cannibalism, ghouls, zombies, there's a question of what created thing, concept, desire, or urge, or whatever has been or is being corrupted to produce this fascination. Um, in this mode of thinking that I tend to default to, um, all our desires are subject to the corruption of the fall. Again, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the individual, depending on specific thing we're talking about. You know, the desire to be intimately and personally loved and to express that love gets corrupted into lust. The desire for peace and security gets corrupted into tyranny, racism, and oppression. The desire to protect others from harm turns into censorship and violence. The fall can even twist our desire to worship together by spurring us to judgmentalism and persecution. 
Having said all that, uh, well, let's launch into a look at what might lie behind this modern phenomena of vampires, zombies, and related tropes of pop culture. The modern vision of the vampire, of course, at least in the English-speaking world, was established by Bram Stoker, his 1897 novel Dracula, and uh, further reinforced and embellished by the film in 1931, starring Bela Lugosi in the title role. Um, uh, and it provides the uh, basic framework, the basic tropes of what vampires are, even to this very day. Uh, there are a large variety, but they all, as a general rule, either operate in the shadow of or in reaction or response to the Stoker's vision of the vampire. It's just this, this is the common language that we're, we're working with. Um, in the novel, the character Renfield is a man who's been driven insane by Dracula. During episodes of madness, he repeats the phrase, the blood is the life, the blood is the life. This phrase is an adaptation, or you might say a corruption, from Leviticus chapter 17, which in the King James, and I'll be using the King James version because it's more fun to read and has, and has a certain, uh, again, a certain resonance, a certain impact to our common English-speaking culture. And so I want to drive that home a little bit. Uh, in the King James, uh, Leviticus 17 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now Leviticus at this point is talking about dietary laws for the Jews, that they're not to consume blood in any form, that there's something distinctive about consuming blood that makes it forbidden by the Torah. In Acts 15, Christians are told not to consume blood either one of the few dietary laws that are brought forward into the New Testament. Renfield's words are kind of a callback to the Old Testament, alluding to the special meaning that blood and the consuming of blood has. I don't know that Stoker was really trying to make a statement about any deep reality here or if he was just using biblical allusions for dramatic effect. I don't know. Maybe both, maybe just one. He was certainly trying for dramatic effect. Um, as I mentioned, vampires have taken a wide variety of forms in popular culture over the last generation or two. Uh, uh, undead, they're undead creatures, as in dead, but are now walking around again, drinking human blood to survive and thrive, with unnatural powers to influence normal humans, often capable of superhuman strength, or even unnatural powers like changing into animal forms, uh, often harmed or impeded by sunlight. Often, they almost always can only be permanently killed by special means, whether it's a stake through the heart, beheading. There's a number of ways that have appeared uh, to kill vampires. So since it's Stoker's vision that is kind of at the root behind this, uh, there's a few points I want to bring out from that novel in relation to what I'm talking about. Uh, Count Dracula begins the novel as the ruler of, ruler of a community, two communities really. He's hereditary lord, 
of a manor in Transylvania with a castle and villagers, uh, terrified villagers upon whom he preys. Um, and the other community is a trio of uh, uh, women who are also vampires under his authority. He dominates them, controls them. He, he, at one point, he actually steals a baby from the villagers and feeds it to these women. Um, uh, Dracula imposes his will on Jonathan Harker, uh, who is his guest. He doesn't take blood from Harker, but clearly plans to kill him once Harker has served his purpose, which is to enable Dracula to move to uh, England, where he can seek fresh prey, and to be close to the center of worldly wealth and power. This is, this is the very, this is toward the end, the very peak of the Victorian era. So London really was kind of the center of the world at that time. I mean, had, uh, you know, this was the period where the sun never set on the British Empire. Um, so if you're going to go to where all the action is, you're going to London. Um, Dracula's predations begin even before he reaches England. The ship that carries him there arrives with the crew all dead. Um, and he soon starts in on the locals. Uh, and then the main action of the novel gets rolling. Through mystical means, Dracula imposes malign influence on his victims uh, by direct voice command or some mag magical hypnosis-like power. Some go mad, like Renfield. Some are lured into letting him feed on them until they die. And then they become undead creatures as well, seeking prey of their own. Uh, those he feeds on are subject to his quote-unquote hypnotic power, which doesn't have a whole lot in common with real-world hypnosis. Um, uh, his control is strongest when they consume some of his blood. We see that happen to Mina Murray, Jonathan's fiance. By the end of the novel, she has become Mina Harker. Uh, and dealing with that mystical connection uh, that is forged at that moment between Mina and Dracula becomes a major plot point in the uh, uh, novel as it, as it progresses. Dracula, in a sense, creates a community around him, just like he did in his homeland, a community of victims, dominated by him, subject to his control, and the only purpose behind this community is to exploit these people, who are mostly women, for his own gain, to expand his power. The community is bound by blood. They've drunk of each other's life, as it were. Remember, the blood is the life and it binds his victims to his will. It's a mystical community formed by physical means. The exchange of blood is the thing that forges the bond between them. While we're talking about uh, the, the novel Dracula, uh, the heroes of the novel uh, are a different kind of community. They respond to Mina's apparent illness, which is actually the effect of blood loss and of Dracula's influence but they immediately rally to her aid. It's a community of love. Uh, not all romantic love, though more than one of the characters 
are actually tied romantically to Mina, either in former or potential relationships. Um, but a love of the good, a love of just fellow humanity, and a revulsion of the evil. Um, the men, because they're all men, um, uh, even give their own blood to save Mina from dying and falling under the control and influence of Dracula and turning into a vampire herself. Now, again, I don't want to harp on the science here. They do it by blood transfusions, which we know now would never work. They would actually do more harm than good. But I'm not talking about science here. This was the state of the science as Stoker knew it at the time. So, um, uh, it's worth noting um, um, that at no point do any of the heroes, including Mina, because Mina puts up a heroic and, and amazing resistance to Dracula's influence. Um, at no point do any of these people question the rightness of what they're doing. There's none of this, oh, well, it's just a different kind of existence. It's just a thing that happens. It's, no, this is evil, and we're going to stop it by whatever means it takes. Just takes them a while to figure it out, and then even longer to actually accomplish it. Um, but there's no doubt Dracula in this book is an evil monster. Vampirism is a curse. No matter what powers come with it, it's evil, it's wrong, it's bad, it has to be stopped. That attitude's changed over the last 120 years, especially uh, toward the end of the 20th century. It feels weird to say that, um, knowing that I was living there. Um, <laughs> The end of the 20th century saw an explosion of vampires in popular media. Not all tied directly to the Stoker framework, but with strong echoes. Um, Anne Rice broke out with the novel Interview with a Vampire in 1976 and following sequels. The World of Darkness, World of Darkness role-playing game came out in 91. Uh, the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer debuted in 97. Um, uh, the year 2000 saw the publication of Stormfront, the first of the Dresden Files novels that many of us know and love, that include a couple of different kinds of vampires that all echo strongly the Stoker framework in, in different ways. Um, and of course, the novel Twilight came out in 2005. And while all this was going on, there was the usual run of Dracula films comedies, dramas, what have you, coming out of Hollywood on a fairly regular basis. Along the way, vampires changed from the embodiment of evil into sympathetic characters, tragically flawed anti-heroes, misunderstood heroes, or even romantic ideals. But they still maintain many of the key points of Stoker's vampire. Vampires all depend on consuming human blood to survive, or human life energy. Um, to me, when I run into a vampire that, oh, I don't feed on blood, I feed on life energy, and go, sorry, the author is just being squeamish. Uh, it's a little judgmental of me, but I'm, that's where I live. Um, uh, but, it, but even 
the absorption of life energy almost always maintains the, the essence of the predator to it. Is that I am taking, I as the vampire am taking your life away from you in order to empower my life. Um, uh, uh, speaking about, you know, life energy versus blood, uh, I won't take time here, but I will mention, I think it's an, also some, an interesting exploration to go what some of the implications are of removing the physical substance from the essential act and what that has to do with body-spirit or mind-body duality and the implications of human existence. But, yeah. Um, it's, it's fairly common for vampires to offer their own blood or energy, whatever you want to call it, to their victims, which might give the victim some benefit, but always forms a special bond between vampire and victim. In Dracula, as in many other stories, it gives the vampire some kind of control over the victim. In other, in, in other stories, there's some merely, merely a mystical bond of some kind, emotional, uh, even telepathic sometimes. In this way, vampires are building a kind of community with their victims, but it remains a community founded on exploitation and predation. Even if the predation is limited and carefully shaped by the author to seem supportive or, or romantic, the vampire is always taking from the victim and may or may not be giving anything substantial in return. Which, and that to me is the common aspect of all these vampiric communities. Even if it's not just a simple, if, even if it's not simply just a managed ladder of predatory hierarchy, they're based on the bond of blood. It's not hereditary. It's not determined by law, like say marriage can be. It's not by any common belief or creed. It's just the bond of blood. Consent might matter when entering the, this community and forging the bond of blood, but the bond once made cannot be broken simply by a matter of withdrawing consent. Is once you're bound, you're bound, and that's almost universal in all the vampire fiction I've read. Uh, vampire communities and, and quote-unquote culture tends to be very authoritarian, where the senior vampire has authority over those of lesser rank, and it's often maintained by this mystical bond. Um, but again, it's even if it's voluntary, the basis of this relationship is taking someone's life to feed your own. Okay, let's set that aside for a moment. Zombies. In some ways, which is sort of the other major form of let's consume human flesh type monsters that are out there. In some ways, zombies are the opposite of vampires. In some ways, they're very, very similar. I mean, there's a resonance in popular culture across cultures, across time. Um, zombie films come out on a fairly regular basis. Uh, video games, novels, graphic novels, etc. Um, and each one has some distinct things to observe about personhood and relationship. There's, of course, like vampires, 
zombies have certain variations, but the basic framework is it's a person who's died, but the corpse has become active and this seeks to devour living human flesh. They have no particular individual personality, no sense of self, no intelligence, creativity, no identity beyond the physical appearance, which even that is often distorted by the process of death and uh, resurgence. They cannot be reasoned with or threatened since they don't feel fear or the need for self-preservation. Their hunger is completely irrational and insatiable. They are never satisfied, but there, ne there seems to be no actual need for nutrition to keep themselves active. They're just after you, and that's all they do is they come after you. <laughs> While a vampire, one vampire, will pretty much have its way with you in, in a direct confrontation, whether through mind control or brute force. A single zombie is rarely such of a major threat. Now they can be physically strong and they're hard to stop because they don't feel pain, but their lack of intelligence and in many presentations, poor motor control, they're fairly easy to avoid or trap. But zombies are never alone. Zombies travel in hordes. Um, zombies, like vampires, exist to consume human, living human tissue. Although zombies don't seem to care much about blood in particular. They just take whatever they can get. But the zombie, unlike the vampire, doesn't seek a relationship. There's no, it's not even a real relationship of power or exploitation. It's simply driven to devour and then find the next person to devour. There's not even a relationship between zombies. Um, I, I do find it interesting thinking about this, that zombies don't devour each other, which, okay, why is that? Um, uh, uh, which is, again, a contrast. Vampires will occasionally prey on each other, um, whether out of extreme hunger or, or as a power play. Um, but zombies don't do that. Zombies don't make personal power plays. Um, both zombies and vampires spread by contagion. Although often the creation of a vampire is done, you know, it takes a deliberate intent for the vampire to do this. Um, whereas, I'll talk about zombies in, uh, in that section in a second. Uh, vampires retain their individuality, even if twisted to evil. Vampires retain the memories and traits of the person they were when they were alive. Um, and when they make a vampire, quote-unquote, it's a clear choice. Uh, and depending on the story, it may or may not be a choice on the victim's part as well. Zombies, on the other hand, are just undead bodies. They have no soul or mind, or at most, mere fragments of the mind they once possessed. A zombie bite is infectious, whether the zombie cares or not, which it doesn't care, and will turn the victim into a zombie in a short amount of time. But there's no decision involved. It simply happens. Um, becoming a zombie destroys the individuality of the victim, um, but there is no... Again, there's no reason behind it. There's no intelligence about this. They simply move as the instinct pushes them. 
One of the interesting things is that zombieism is typically presented as a plague, uh, that there's actually a germ or virus or uh, chemical. Um, again, I'm not talking about details of science here. Um, but the, with the point that not only do zombies not think about who or how zombieism spreads, it's not really the act of the zombie that spreads the plague. It's just the natural operation, natural in quotes, operation of a contagion they happen to carry. Um, there's no morality, no cooperation, no communication. The only bond they share is a single overriding urge to devour the living. Uh, a zombie horde, if it can be called a community at all, is a community of annihilation. It's a mass of unconnected dead people animated by this urge to destroy with no goal or purpose than to continue their consumption. Like vampires, it's a destructive, predatory community which, which nullifies the humanity and life of its victims. Uh, reducing them to objects of exploitation, even, even though this exploitation takes somewhat different forms. Uh, vampires impose their individual will on the people around them. Zombies destroy their own individual will and join the horde as they prey on the people around them. Um, and it's uh, this concept of, of self and individuality that is, to me, the key difference between vampires and zombies. They're two very different aspects of what is really the same process, which is, I, my hunger overrules your life. Uh, uh, I'm kind of skipping through my notes here. Uh, but both kinds of monsters create communities of destruction around themselves by this consumption of human flesh and blood. Okay. Let's try to come out of this dark tunnel here and try to turn toward the light. As early as the book of Genesis, in chapter 9, we see warnings and judgments against shedding human blood. Um, because whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Gen again, King James. Uh, Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God indicates we don't do human sacrifice. Here's an animal to substitute. But even though animals can be eaten and be used as legitimate sacrifices, the, the book of Leviticus warns the children of Israel uh, that they are forbidden from eating blood. Uh, let's see. My notes. Ah, there we go. My notes are in disarray. Uh, again, back to Leviticus chapter 17. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Boom. So it's pretty clear that killing humans is bad as a general rule, and human sacrifice is bad. Killing animals for food or for sacrifice is okay within limits. But even then, there's something special about the actual blood. Um, uh, the Jews are told that, that to eat blood is a sin, is an offense against God. Even kosher animals, you don't eat the blood, period. Um, and again, Acts 15 the apostles in Jerusalem send out instruction that the converted Gentiles were to abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. So even in the New Testament, you have that rule echoed. You, you don't eat blood. Blood is not for you to eat. I mean, it's on the same list with avoiding fornication, okay? This, this means something, okay? Um, but what is special? Well, there's the phrase, uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's a pretty strong hint, followed by, it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. The flesh, the meat of the sacrifice, is dealt with by burning or eating it. But it's the blood that, quote, maketh the atonement. It's the giving of life that is the fuel for the atoning effect of the sacrifice. Animals, and humans for that matter, can survive the loss of limbs and other portions of flesh. But without blood, the individual dies. Without blood, without a flow of, of, of fresh blood, even living limbs will die, even if they're still attached to a living being. Um, uh, that vampires, certainly our modern stoker vampires and their varied offspring, specifically feed on blood, suggests there's, uh, this imagery is still in play here. Blood is, in a real sense, the life of the individual. To take it is to really and symbolically take part of their essence, their life, for your own good. Okay, now let's, let's go to the Gospel of John. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Wait. But we've got all these Bible verses about never eating blood and stuff. Okay, let's look at the context. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus has recently fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. It's a miracle. He walked up to the ship. His disciples were riding in. Another miracle. And he starts talking about the true bread from heaven, and I am the bread of life, and how everyone which believeth on him may have everlasting life. Okay, down with all that. And in the synagogue, as part of his teaching, he speaks these words, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Okay, still, still doesn't sound real good. And in fact, the gospel tells us that a lot of his disciples, my understanding is most of them, gave up on him when he said that. He says, no, this is one of the earliest rules 
that God gave us is you don't eat blood. And Jesus turns to the 12 and asks them, are you going to give up too? And this is where Simon Peter asks the question that uh, uh, means, has meant an awful lot of, to me in my spiritual walk is, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. I can easily imagine that at least some of these 12 were thinking, this sounds crazy. The most ancient holy texts forbid the eating of blood of any kind. I don't know what the rabbi is talking about, but I know him enough to trust him. Surely he'll explain what this means someday. I, indeed. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So he didn't actually open a vein and make the disciples drink, the way Dracula did to Mina. Nor did he tear a piece of his flesh away. From that day to this, Christians partake in the ritual instituted by Jesus Christ himself, the holy sacrament where we consume bread and wine consecrated to become his flesh and blood. Uh, And as the Orthodox liturgy phrases it, for the remission of sins and for eternal life. Okay, so this eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood is just symbolic, right? It's, we're not nothing at all like vampires and zombies, right? That's uh, well, no mere symbol. I'm not a theologian, but it's been made pretty clear to me that there is something real going on. Christ is really present in the cup of Holy Communion, in, a, in the sacrament that employs physical means to establish and maintain a mystical bond, a bond that ties each believer to God and to each other, a community of consumption, a holy community. So what's the real difference here? How is this community focused on the consumption of bread and wine that isn't just a symbol of flesh and blood. How is it different from these evil communities that, we, that I've laid out here? Well, the differences are huge and many. Um, one big thing, and you know, I'm most familiar with the Orthodox liturgy, so that's the one I'm kind of playing off of here, but You know, it's not limited to that. It's just the one I know. The Orthodox liturgy calls explicit attention that this is a bloodless sacrifice. There, no one is harmed. No one is made, is, is, nothing is taken away from anyone here. Um, The physical means by which the ritual is affected are not taken as in, you know, 
It doesn't make less out of anybody. But it's bread and wine, common products readily available in most circumstances. But again, it's a bloodless sacrifice. There is no blood shed here. Another difference is none of the participants are coerced. There's no mystical hypnotic power. There's no trickery. There's no brute force that makes anyone participate. I mean, in our fallen world, yeah, there are times when people are forced to do it, but that's not what the, you know, that's not what the Eucharist is about. Um, the gifts are given freely. Those who receive do so by choice. Uh, there is no exploitation involved. Uh, nothing is taken away from those who receive. Nothing is added to the one whose blood we drink. The exchange is one of love and life. The sacraments is a means of blessing, not one of dominance or control. To be sure, there's a recognition by those participating that God is Lord, but this recognition is freely given, not, again, not imposed by an external force. The participants are not turned into slaves or victims by this participation. It is a voluntary thing. The community formed by the sacrament is based on love. No one's personality is annihilated or ruined. In fact, the intent behind it is to bring more life, greater life, fully life to those who partake as individuals and as a community. Ultimately, the intended effect of the sacrament is to bring each person to the highest state of existence, full fellowship with the one who created everything in the first place. And now I offer the most wonderful words of any speech. In conclusion, <laughs> it often seems to be true that for us to appreciate what is good, we have to see the shadows around it, the shadows cast by the fallen world we live in. Millions, I dare say billions, of people around the world are familiar with vampires and zombies, thanks to mass media, speculative fiction of all kinds, and they readily recognize the standard tropes around the undead. I'd venture to say that fewer people than that appreciate the mystery and miracle that is Holy Communion. But this is true of almost anything good. Uh, in our fallen world, we're all too familiar with the evils around us, among us, and in us. Where, um, news, rumors, culture in general seems to revel in badness, whether it's natural disasters, crime, political struggles, vengeful memories of our own, or vengeful memories handed down to us. And it's the same with fictional dangers, such as zombies and vampires, that resonate in our hearts and minds and tingle down our spine without us always really knowing why. So I hope this once over lightly overview uh, served an example of how a careful look at the monsters that fascinate us can open unexpected windows on things we can truly treasure if we dig for them. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, 
Yay, we're still on schedule. I've got a fair amount of time for any questions or responses from you guys. Uh, we will bring in lunch hopefully at noon, and that's about 15 minutes from now. So uh, think about consuming things. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, any questions or? Yes, Deacon. As you've talked about this, one difference between the vampire and the zombie in my, in, in the popular culture I've experienced is the consumption of blood, the consumption of brains. Mm -hmm. And, and you've, you've spoken about you know, the significance of blood. Mm -hmm. um, have, have you reflected on what, what it means to consume the brain or what this... Um, to some extent, um, my thought about, you know, the, the typical thing about zombies consuming brains um, is that, to me, that's more of a comedic twist because in most of the zombie films, especially the earlier ones, they're not after brains per se. They're just after living flesh. Uh, the whole brains thing has kind of come about uh, more recently and in popular, you know, comedic meme culture kind of things. Uh, obviously, you can say that, well, um, you know, zombies, as I have alluded to, are a destruction of the individual personality. And we know that that largely resides in the brain. Uh, so it would make sense that if zombies picked something they wanted, it would be the brain because that's the thing that most that makes you most different from a zombie is your individual mind. Huh. Okay. So, uh, sure. That's a very, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't talk about any of that. I was just trying to get my general message. But, yeah, uh, the uh, World of Darkness role-playing game, uh, originally, it's kind of strayed because people like power trips. But it's kind of strayed from its original. But the thing that fascinated me about it, even when it first came out, was that the underlying theme of, uh, you know, in order to, I forget how they phrased it, but it's basically is, um, you know, if I want to survive, I have to do wicked things. But if I don't do wicked things, the hunger will become so much that I will lose myself and just become a beast. You know, a beast I am, yes, lest a beast I become. I think that, I, if I'm remembering that right. Um, uh, also a 
you know, I mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and this is an opportunity to slide in one of my personal little-known favorites. There was a Canadian television series that came out in the early 90s called Forever Night. And it is precisely what it is, is it's a vampire who has lived hundreds of years and been fully indulgent vampire, but has come to the realization that he needs to rein this in and, you know, try to turn to the good. So he's a cop on the night beat, of course. But the whole series deals with his struggles of how to balance that. Um, and also, hearkening back to the Star Wars talk we had just, pre just previous to this, um, one of the things he deals with is the vampire who made him, who obviously has also lived hundreds of years and has absolutely no patience for this be good stuff. Uh, so he's, you know, it, it's, you know, but it, it's remarkably well done and it ended shortly before Buffy started. Um, but if you can find it, I recommend it. It's, it's got some fun stuff. Yeah. So if the Eucharist is not cannibalism because nobody's being hurt, would then it not be cannibalism to eat somebody in a survival situation that had already died? Uh, yes, because it's still human flesh you're eating. But and that's your basic definition of cannibals. I'm not a theologian, <laughs> and I will hide behind my lack of training and ignorance because that's something that you could argue about and people have argued about since, you know, biblical times. Uh, yeah, there you go. Ask, there's, there's your orthodox uh, uh, advice. Ask your priest. I'm sure he'll appreciate the question. <laughs> hey. Knowing our priest, he might actually. There are, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, hey, you know, if I eat this, am I a cannibal? Um, but, you know, it, I mean, the, the doctrine of the real presence has taken some very different turns in different denominations, different interpretations. Uh, and it's a, you know, if you want to get into a deep theological topic, uh, here's one right for you. You could spend your life exploring it. And I'm sure people have made THDs out of it. Uh, anyone else? Uh, yes, Predator. Suppose you had a choice. Do you have to choose whether to be a vampire or a Borg? Which would you choose? A vampire or a, or a Borg? Okay, if I had to choose. Um, if I absolutely had to choose. I'd say vampire. Precisely because the vampire retains their individuality. And through that, you are able to make significant moral choices, whereas that is not clear with the Borg. Uh, Vampires seem to have an inherent evil to them. Whereas mm -hmm. if you became a Borg or a zombie, because you don't have your individuality, you can't be held responsible for your actions while you're in that state. That's arguable. It's an interesting argument. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't doubt you that... that ah, but is that because you simply wish to avoid uh, the, the uh, judgment of morality? I think a single vampire is welcome to a lot more damage than a single one. Well, that's... that's yeah. <laughs> uh, a 
lot of the culture that you've referenced in regards to zombies to vampires mm -hmm. suggests that that a vampire is capable of asceticism, is <laughs> capable of Absolutely, and and this is this is one aspect that you know the modern explorations and iterations of the vampire still get my attention sometimes um, because yeah, as you say, it's kind of the ultimate example of a fallen human because you retain your ability to make judgments and to control your actions. But at the same time, again, your existence, your survival, depends on taking life from somebody else. Ah. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a problem because to me, uh, the, when you start treating monsters who are clearly evil by their very nature, uh, when you start making them these sympathetic or it's characters, you start to, to me at least, and I'm, Again, not an expert, but to me, you run a big risk of losing the impact of the symbol, of, of what a monster is, what it represents. You know, you lose the, the resonance that this creature has on our, on our psyche. On the other hand, it's, um, you could look at it as a good thing in that, you know, Bram Stoker was writing out of the Victorian era where things were very judgmental, black-white, you know, dichotomies. Either you're a good guy or you're, you're a bad guy, whether you base that on race, creed, location, class, whatever. And, you know, uh, these modern interpretations are in some ways a challenge of that and looking at the you know, the very real issue of, uh, to, to quote Solzhenitsyn, you know, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. You know, I mean, these are the, the selfishness and uh, 
willingness to take what I, what I want, that the vampire is the very embodiment of, is a very real thing for each of us. You know, I will take what I think I need or what I want just because I want it. Because I, I want it. Um, and that is, a, that's a very real danger. Yeah. I just wonder if, um, I mean, it used to be that they would just have a, a broken rebel guy and the world would be trying to save him. And that was mm -hmm. bad enough. But now it's like, that's it. No, broken rebel guys aren't bad enough. You know, it has to be a vampire. So yeah. it's like, actually, it's nature. Because it makes it either easier for me to write with a bigger change or a larger possible character arc. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, thank you. Yeah, that's also another aspect of, you know, um, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a power creep or a villain inflation or something is just no dealing. And this is, you know, again, hearkening back to the Star Wars, one of the gripes I have, you know, I had about the prequels especially, is that there aren't any normal people in the prequels of Star Wars. There's no Han Solo figure. Everybody is either a Jedi or a Sith or both or something. Uh, you know, uh, they, got, they brought some of that back in with the, the, what do you call them, the sequels? The post-quels, whatever. Um, but there's this, it does seem like there's a tendency to, you know, up, let, let's ramp up the issues so that yeah, like you said, uh, somebody who's just done bad things isn't contrasting enough to grab the audience or something. We have to make it a, we have to, we literally have to make it a monster to reach the same pitch of response. So yeah, you're. Which of the kind of modern Okay, I'm most familiar with the, you know, the Buffy Angel and the Dresden, and I, I haven't fully delved into both. I, I, um, the Dresden Files are interesting because in its three or four kinds of vampire, it's exploring, it's sort of parsing out different aspects of the Stoker framework and some of the interpretations have been put on it. You know, you have the classic stoker vampire that, you know, turns into bats and eats blood. And then you have, what is it, the white court that feeds on emotion, is it? I forget how it all goes. And there's the red court that feeds on something, which usually ends up being lust, so it's all sexual stuff. Uh, and then there's, like, the jade court that nobody knows anything about. Uh, uh, and of course, the angel Buffy is, you know, is kind of where the uh, um, conflicted vampire trying to be good really erupted onto the popular stage. I mean, I alluded to Forever Night, which is a very similar character in that sense. Um, I think the, if I had to pick one, I'd probably go with the angel Buffy mix because of that conflict that Yes, it deals with all these horrible things about vampires, because again, Angel's been around for centuries and has done a lot of wicked things, but he's trying to overcome that. And that struggle to overcome not only his inherent nature,
but the acts that he willfully committed speaks to me a lot more directly than you know theoretical meanderings about different types of vampires. So uh, probably just take one more because I think lunch has arrived and been laid out. So one more. And this is, you know, I will, I confess, I will tisk tisk and roll my eyes at a lot of these presentations and iterations and, and interpretations. But I don't like to just throw them out because, you know, they are bringing up different issues in different ways. Um, and yes, I have certain opinions, but my opinions, thankfully, are not law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it is, you know, one of the delights of the speculative fiction that we're all talking about that, you know, allows us to explore these ideas in different ways. Uh, you know, and as we've seen, I mean, this is what the whole DoxCon thing is about, is seeing these themes and these visions of reality and what do they tell us about ourselves and about society and even about uh, spiritual truths. So with that, again, thank you all very much for your attention. We'll uh, break for lunch. Uh, let me see here. Lunch is back on the table.